I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1955, a politician named George Christopher promised to clean up San Francisco. The mayoral candidate swore to voters that all manner of vice would be eradicated, from drugs to illegal gambling to prostitution. No sin would go unnoticed under Christopher's watch. And his campaign worked. His administration endorsed S-squads, cops whose sole duty it was to patrol San Francisco's streets looking for signs of bad behavior. They arrested or intimidated all manner of people in the red light district. The muggers, gamblers, and dealers weren't having a good time under Christopher's watch. But the prostitutes, at least some of them, had a way out. They just needed to say a name. George White? White was their get-out-of-jail-free card. The local cops knew his authority as a narcotics officer superseded their own when it came to sex workers. And so many prostitutes mentioned his name that law enforcement started referring to them as George's girls. San Francisco Narcotics Bureau, this is White. Got a lady of the night here who says she doesn't belong in jail. So cut her loose. Any special reason why? Let's just say that lost souls get to me. Thanks, boys. Why did White care so much about getting escorts out of jail? Well, he owed them a favor. That's because George's girls had some additional responsibilities. They were an extension of his experiments, subcontractors to one of the most powerful government agencies in the world. And not even the mayor of San Francisco had enough power or influence to keep George White from doing his patriotic duty. And in this case... George White's patriotic duty was to observe them from behind a two-way mirror, watching them having sex while sitting on a portable toilet and drinking martinis, often recording it. Though they didn't know it themselves, George's girls were the CIA's prostitutes, and they would help George White reach the most depraved heights of his career. 
iHeartRadio. This is Operation Midnight Climax, an iHeart original podcast. I'm Noel Brown, and this is Chapter 6, A Waste of Sin. Part 1. The Wild West. In 1953, George White was like a traveling salesman running out of new customers. He targeted and drugged his friends, friends of friends, strangers, and more than a few criminals. But things were getting dangerous. In Greenwich Village, word had spread about the man with cold blue eyes who liked to invite you home and serve LSD on the rocks. But it wasn't just the rumors that worried him. George White was being followed. It started after White was told to close up shop at his Greenwich Village pad and take on a new assignment, this time in Houston, Texas. At the time, the police force was embroiled in a controversy involving crooked cops who were selling stolen heroin back to criminals. So White flew down. He started by interviewing a detective named Martin Bilnitzer. But the case quickly stalled. The very next day, Bilnitzer shot himself well, appeared to have shot himself. White thought it was murder. It's very difficult to shoot yourself in the chest. Houston police weren't happy about an outsider sticking his nose in their business. They called his boss, Harry Anslinger, to complain that he wasn't welcome. One cop even approached White in a diner, gun on his hip, and told him he'd leaned too hard on his friend. White shrugged it off. Then, the man stepped back, eyeing White like they were in an Old West saloon, and told him they could settle things outside. George White might have wound up in a duel if cooler heads hadn't prevailed. But that wasn't the end of it. Back in New York, White realized he was being tailed by Houston cops. They were hoping to find evidence he was a communist. At the time, a kiss of death that could have ruined his name and career. Of course, they didn't understand White had been busy fighting communism for a very long time. Still, White realized it was a good time to leave New York City. Sidney Gottlieb, White's supervisor, didn't want to stop drug experiments. So he proposed that White relocate to San Francisco and resume his activities there. But there would be a twist. While White had been occupied with the role of drugs in getting the truth, Gottlieb now wanted him to weaponize sex as well. Spies and sex have a long tradition together. Seduction has always played a role in foreign intrigue and espionage, especially in the movies. And the principle was similar to the one behind LSD. It was about someone letting their guard down. Sex made a subject vulnerable. Maybe Sidney Gottlieb had been looking for the weapon to win the Cold War in the wrong places all along. Maybe sex was the ultimate truth drug. In March 1955, White and Albertine packed their things and headed to San Francisco. The couple maintained a separate residence there, but the real action would be at the L-shaped apartment at 225 Chestnut Street in Telegraph Hill, a scenic neighborhood overlooking the San Francisco Bay, Fisherman's Wharf, and even Alcatraz, where some of the dope pushers White had long ago put away may have been idling. Why did Gottlieb select San Francisco? In the 1950s, the city was alive with art and music. The thinking was progressive. 
Like Greenwich Village, the city had embraced the beat generation and the counterculture movement. In October 1955, it hosted the famous Six Gallery Reading, where poets including Allen Ginsberg and Michael McClure read their work. It was the first time Ginsberg ever read Howell in public, and it was met with a raucous reception from drunk spectators, including Jack Kerouac. Cynically, Gottlieb targeted San Francisco because the gay community was stirring there. Sex positivity was in. The first lesbian rights organization, the Daughters of Bolitis, had just formed in the city. If the CIA was going to study sex, it needed to be in a place where sexuality was thriving. But before White's work could begin, the Chestnut Street apartment needed a makeover. Part of it was for surveillance purposes. White hired an engineering student from Cal Berkeley, a tech whiz, to wire microphones into wall outlets. A movie camera was obscured behind a two-way mirror where White could observe and record any deeds that unfolded. The radio antenna was intended to let agents parked outside listen to what was happening in the room. Maybe they were there to watch the door, to take surveillance photographs for CIA blackmail purposes. But that audio signal is how the live sex shows wound up getting out over the airwaves to anyone picking up the frequency. White wasn't just concerned with the technical stuff. He wanted atmosphere. To find it, he looked to Hugh Hefner and tried to ape the Playboy aesthetic. Records show that he expensed over 100 items to the CIA, including drapes, a mattress, art, and a telescope. With the CIA's money, he also bought several reproductions of Henri de Toulouse Lautrec's works, the 19th century artist who was fascinated by Paris's lurid underbelly. White thought the paintings, mostly of naked women kissing and embracing one another, set the mood. He also brought along some photos of women in bondage, likely supplied by his old friend, the fetish publisher, John Willie. All of it gave Chestnut Street a kind of CIA bordello aesthetic, a strange mix of softcore porn and cheap elegance. Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec was also fond of depicting prostitutes in his work. And that was another reason San Francisco was ideal for White's purposes. In order to crack the code of sex and drugs as matters of national security, he needed the sex. He needed professionals. And for that, the CIA would need a pimp. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. 
and you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part 2 Staffing up. Normally, procuring female escorts would have fallen on Pierre Lafitte, who had been White's right-hand man back in New York City. But Lafitte was still taking a vacation of sorts in St. Petersburg, Florida. That's where White had sent him to lay low following the controversial death of CIA employee Frank Olson. He had lost his Robin. So he did the same thing Bruce Wayne once did in the comics. He got himself a new sidekick. White summoned a man named Ira Ike Feldman. Of all the characters to pass through White's life, Feldman was one of the most outrageous. He was a fellow narcotics bureau agent whose exterior helped obscure a fierce intellect. A former military intelligence officer, he spoke fluent Russian and Mandarin. He was also good with the undercover work. In fact, he'd spent the past several months posing as a heroin dealer and pimp under the alias Joe Capone. The two men knew each other by reputation. In 1994, journalist Richard Stratton tracked down Ike Feldman. And rather than being evasive or contrite about his CIA work, Feldman was all too happy to talk about it. Here's what he said about working with George White. White was a son of a bitch, but he was a great cop. That was Feldman's way of saying he liked White. And just like White, he had taken his alter ego to extremes. His persona of Joe Capone was flamboyant, prone to blue suede shoes, pinstriped suits, huge hats, and a massive fake diamond ring. Feldman was just five foot three, but quick with his tongue and his fists. Like White, he was from the old school of law enforcement. His preferred method of getting people to talk involved a hammer. Sometimes when people had information, 
There's the one way you could get it. If it was a guy, you took his cock and you hit it with a hammer. And they'd talk to you. But Wyatt made an appeal to Feldman's curiosity. What if there was a good way to get people to talk without hitting their dicks with hammers? White explained the program. He would supply the drugs, typically LSD, but whatever struck his fancy, from sedatives to uppers to experimental drugs that didn't even have a name yet, the CIA would supply the safe house, and Feldman, as the pimp, would supply the women, ladies he recruited from bars and massage parlors. Feldman would later argue he was only posing as a pimp. He was an undercover cop playing a role, and the role of Joe Capone called for him to take on the profile of a drug dealer and vice kingpin. But when you're recruiting actual prostitutes to have actual sex with actual customers and paying them actual money, well, doesn't that make you an actual pimp too? It wasn't long before Ike Feldman, CIA pimp, had assembled a harem for George White's brothel. The prostitutes probably didn't know about the CIA part. They just knew Feldman and White were paying them between $50 to $100 a night to bring Johns back to the Chestnut Street apartment, where they were to serve the men drinks dosed with LSD or other drugs. And then they were supposed to indulge in whatever the Johns desired. The women could keep whatever fee they normally charged for services rendered. Whether Feldman took a cut of that to keep up his pimp appearances is unknown. But the women had another, far more important incentive to work with White and Feldman. White promised each one that if they were ever busted by San Francisco police for their escort work, they could call him and he would arrange for their immediate release. The more men they brought to the pad, the more favors White would owe them. George's girls had virtual immunity from the local police. White wasn't someone who looked down on sex workers. Long before he became a narcotics agent, White worked for the United States Border Patrol, and at the border, he fell for one. In his autobiography, he wrote, Her name was Estrelita, and it was clear that she loved me with deep passion. Otherwise, would she have taken time off from her duties to lose herself in my embraces? Como no. However, she subsequently fractured some of my ideals if not my heart. When it came time to murmur adios that night, she rubbed her fingertips together in a manner that didn't at all suggest deathless love. Money, she said. You get paid for your work. I get paid for mine. Estralita made quite an impression. Later, while working as a narcotics cop in Omaha, White made the acquaintance of another prostitute named Babe Barnes and it might have been his first experience as a voyeur. Babe freely permitted me to use her workshop as my observation post. Regularly, I was able to maintain a surveillance of her visitors, particularly the narcotic-minded ones, from the clothes closet in her room or even from under her busy bed. Much of my knowledge of the more esoteric facts of life, not to mention my information on the local narcotic traffic, was gained in this somewhat clinical fashion. When White was about to be transferred, he visited Babe Barnes one last time. I paid one more visit to Babe, whom I'd learned to like. She was in the Council Bluffs jail doing 60 days. It was a sad sort of rainy day, and she was pretty low, having run out of money, friends, and cigarettes. 
I restocked her in at least one or two of these categories and suggested that she try some other profession when it was over, which was like trying to persuade Campbell to stop canning soup. <laughs> What's funny? I was thinking about you laying under my bed to catch junkies. <laughs> What's funny about that? Nothing, except you're probably the first guy who ever learned my business from the ground up. <laughs> so long, babe. So long, George. I'll uh, see you again sometime. No, you won't. Never happens, but good luck. And it never happened, of course. It was the closest George White ever came to explaining why he could respect the law, even though he didn't mind, and even respected those who kept breaking it. She was a lost soul. Lost souls get to me. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on 
you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part three, breakthrough. In the spring of 1955, everything was in place for George White. He'd finally be able to find out whether a combination of sex and drugs was the key to breaking down the walls of discretion. If it worked, maybe the Cold War would swing in their favor. If it didn't, George White, renowned sexual deviant, would still get paid to watch live sex shows. The apartment on Chestnut Street was fully wired for audio and video. White and Feldman had girls, LSD, and an ample supply of subjects. White even gave his project a name. Operation Midnight Climax. The escorts would go out on the prowl and quickly ensnare a man using time-tested methods of seduction. You want to fuck, it's $20. White sat behind the two-way mirror, recording. For ambience, White displayed his extensive collection of opium pipes, collected from years of drug busts. In front of him was a large martini pitcher, which he drained over the course of an evening, peeing it out into the toilet underneath him so he wouldn't miss a minute of action. Sometimes, when he was particularly struck by an escort's beauty, he'd turn to his colleague and say, That's a waste of a sin." The escort and her John would step into the bedroom, clothing falling to the floor. White told the women to approach anyone they liked, from outcasts to white-collar professionals. Like any serious scientist, White wanted a cross-section of subjects. But whether it was at the bar or in the living room, or even in the bedroom, the Johns were always offered a drink, often with something in it. As the LSD worked its magic, the escorts would do what escorts do. At first, White wanted to see if their willingness to try things sexually had any influence on whether the man would loosen up. Positions played out like a Kama Sutra page come to life. They assumed whatever role their partner wanted, a scolding teacher, a jilted lover, a closet full of sex toys was at their disposal. Everything from dildos to paddles, After experiencing their fantasy of choice, the men would enter their refractory period. And it was here George White would lean forward, martini in hand, and wait for a revelation. The escorts would poke and prod the Johns about their profession, their family, their friends. Sometimes they were politicians, sometimes millionaires. Others worked for companies that demanded discretion. What would they say in George White's Fantasia? a place where pleasure was always on tap. Basically, they'd talk about their wives, about their kids, about their bosses. Sometimes it was under the influence of LSD. Sometimes just sex would be enough. White always learned what the men did for a living. But he was looking for more. 
Would an airline pilot talk about the technical issues of a passenger plane? Would a lawyer talk about a client? The CIA's theory was that men were most vulnerable as they neared orgasm. Their hormones had completely taken over by that point. And if the escort could somehow delay their climax, they might talk. This didn't work. When the escorts tried to stall or converse, the men were virtually in a trance. Their hormones were the dominant force in their brains. So the CIA tried other things. Years later, Feldman would recall that the CIA shipped a new aphrodisiac to the pad for White and his girls to try out. Not long after, the women brought back a number of Russian sailors and served them this concoction, which CIA chemists had informally dubbed the sex tender. White wanted to know all kinds of crap, but they weren't talking. So we had the girls slip him this sex drug. These guys went crazy. White found out what he wanted to know. What Feldman was describing was something remarkably like Viagra, which wouldn't go on sale for another 40 years. But there was a missing piece of the equation. White was a master interrogator, someone who could make a mime talk. But now that the prostitutes were the public face of this experiment, they had to learn a different kind of manipulation. And so did the CIA. Remember that even though George White had been around the block, the CIA hadn't. Not when it came to sexual coercion. They wanted to know everything they could about the role of sex and espionage. So they constantly dispatched psychologists to interview the women, asking them about how they approached men, how they made them comfortable, what men liked, what they didn't. They didn't know what a trick was, what a John was. It wasn't uncommon to walk into the pad and see a CIA shrink, white dress shirt sleeves rolled up and fogging up their eyeglasses as a prostitute told them the best ways to use sex to get what they wanted. In their case, money. For the CIA, it was secrets. Sometimes these exchanges bordered on the ridiculous. Once, Feldman walked in to find CIA psychologist John Gittinger on the floor with two prostitutes. Using bendable pipe cleaners, the kind you'd find in school art projects, as the women contorted them into human shapes to illustrate the various acrobatics their clients liked. Gittinger photographed these tiny dioramas for posterity, carrying them all back to CIA headquarters. But most of the time, no psychologists or mental health professionals would be on hand to oversee these experiments. Most of the time, it was just George White, inebriated, sitting on the portable toilet behind a mirror, taking notes. White was many things, a cop, a brawler, a patriot. But he wasn't a doctor. His observations were superficial in the extreme. He could only record and comment on whether a subject had spoken freely, not about their overall mental state. From his perch, White absorbed only the most salacious elements of this grand experiment. He was a CIA-sanctioned voyeur. Just as he had with Babe Barnes back in Omaha, White took a liking to one escort in particular. Her name was Liz Evans, and she spent hours with both White and Gittinger, filling them in on every possible nuance of her profession. She had no idea they were acting on behalf of the CIA. White was just a narcotics cop, and Gittinger a very curious associate. 
On a few occasions, White asked her to accompany foreign dignitaries to some black tie events, then retreat with them back to their hotel rooms. Was White behind a mirror in an adjacent room filming? Was he under the bed, as he had been with Barnes? Evans never said, though she did have something to say to writer H.P. Alborelli Jr. I was paid to practice my womanly charms. I'm sure George filmed parts of those encounters if he could have. A lot of the times there were guys with George who had movie cameras and sound equipment. Even more curiously, Evans recalled that White's experiments sometimes involved some very unconventional means of influence. We used to play these crazy games, hypnosis, and like that. Yeah, I think I was hypnotized once by a friend of George's. White peered through his looking glass for weeks and then months, the film camera capturing all of the encounters. He spent his days hunting drug dealers and his nights watching naked bodies contort themselves into any and every sexual position imaginable. The results were always unpredictable. The men seemed guarded, even after drinks, even after hallucinogenic chemicals turned the pad into a world of bright colors and four-breasted women. I'm close, Sid. I know we're close. What was missing was something prostitutes didn't normally offer. Intimacy. White took the prostitutes aside and told them to try something. After sex, after climax, they would usually hurry out of bed, get dressed, and get the john out the door. Like a restaurant, high turnover was good for business. But White told them to linger instead, to just stay in bed and talk. The CIA had been looking at this experiment as a two-sided equation between sex and drugs. But White saw a third side, the male ego. When a prostitute began taking an interest in the man beyond their allotted time, they were flattered. They felt special. And they wanted to reciprocate by talking, conversing, sharing themselves, just like their escorts appeared to be doing. As one CIA officer later said, To find a prostitute who is willing to stay is a hell of a shock to anyone used to prostitutes. It has a tremendous effect on the guy. It's a boost to his ego if she's telling him he was really neat and she wants to stay for a few more hours. Most of the time, he gets pretty vulnerable. What the hell is he going to talk about? Not the sex, so he starts talking about his business. It's at this time she can lead him gently. The simple act of human proximity and a very reduced sense of inhibition, thanks to the drugs, led to the John saying things they shouldn't. Private things things one wouldn't normally say to an escort. Everyone is taking kickbacks at City Hall. Everyone. Yeah? You? Sure. Just how you play the game. The prostitutes weren't there solely for the Johns. When George White's boss, Sidney Gottlieb, came to visit, they were there for him too. Just as he had with LSD, Gottlieb liked to take a hands-on approach. Several times Sidney Gottlieb came out. I met Gottlieb at the pad and at White's office. White used to send me to the airport to pick up Sidney and this other wacko, John Gittinger, the psychologist. Sidney was a nice guy. He was a fucking nut. They were all fucking nuts. 
Feldman claimed Gottlieb availed himself of the hired help, retreating to a private space with the prostitutes. They did it as a favor to Feldman. This is all rather illicit, dark, even for George White, but Ike Feldman managed to bring it down to another, more disturbing level. Decades later, a woman stepped forward who'd been an escort working for Feldman on a narcotics case. Money and favors weren't the only form of payment the CIA offered. You do a good job on this and I can get you some of the best heroin you've ever had. When an escort was a drug addict, it was another way in. A way to motivate this army of subcontractors. White was prepared to do anything to succeed. But here's the thing about CIA-financed drug dens and brothels. Sometimes they can get too conspicuous. White had been in business for about a year in Telegraph Hill when Ike Feldman decided to throw a party. It was a lavish affair, full of attractive women, drugs, and a beautiful view of San Francisco. As Feldman mingled in his pinstripe suit, he made deals for heroin. He flashed cash. He let it be known that he was after no bigger a fish than Ronaldo Red Ferrari, San Francisco's reigning criminal kingpin. No one knew Feldman was a cop, but they soon would. And when Feldman took the stand to testify at Ferrari's eventual trial, the San Francisco examiner made sure to explain how he'd pulled a fast one on Ferrari, that the spectacular parties had all been arranged, that Feldman was working undercover, and that 225 Chestnut Street was where he had laid his trap. George White's utopia was no longer an anonymous broadcast, and the CIA's secret campaign to harness the power of sex and drugs was on the brink of being laid bare for the entire world to see. But George White wasn't about to lose his dream job for a second time. He wasn't going to let San Francisco become another New York. There was still too much to learn, too many secrets to uncover. He'd do anything to keep it going, even if it meant teaming up with a magician. Operation Midnight Climax is hosted by Noel Brown. This show is written by Jake Rosen. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Ernie Indradat and Natasha Jacobs. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson and Marisa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Special thanks to Enzo Salucci, Amanda Colbinson, Spencer Gibson, David Krumholtz, Vanessa Krumholtz, Vinnie Massimino, and Ted Ramey. Julian Weller is our supervising producer. Our executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikader. See you next week. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts